there are things out there, creatures, monsters, ghouls and spirits, beings that fall outside the realm of visible truth, beyond the confines of our basic reality. They lurk in the dark, haunt the recesses of our minds, and stir our curiosity in the unusual and weird. They are taboo topics, stories that we tell around the campfire and folklore passed down from our ancestors. We've been taught that these things don't exist, that they are merely myth and legend. Or are they? Welcome to the Occult Archives. I'm your host and spooky librarian, E.M. Moon, but feel free to refer to me as E. Here lies a space beyond all spaces, a library full of arcane information enough to drive any normal person mad. If you can think of it, if you can question it, the archives probably have what you seek. Tonight, I am taking you all on a little trip to the Deep South, to a place that those of you in the state should know, Louisiana. No, we're not going on holiday, unless ghosts, witches, and vampires are your idea of a holiday. Oh, who am I kidding? If you're listening to this, of course they are. But when you hear someone mention Louisiana, most of you would probably think about New Orleans, and the majority of the stories I'm going to tell you over the next couple of episodes will take places in the city. But the supernatural energy that emanates from the Big Easy has permeated other areas of the state, or maybe it's because of the things that we've done on this land. Either way, the South and the state of Louisiana have no shortage of ghost stories, and that's where we are going to start on this trip. Almost two hours northwest of New Orleans is a city called St. Francisville and the home of the Myrtles Plantation. The plantation was built in 1796 by General David Bradford on 600 acres of land and is touted as one of America's most haunted homes. There are a variety of legends and stories that accompany the house, some saying that the home was reputedly built over an Indian burial ground. The original house boasted six bays and three dormers on the roof, and then in the mid-1850s, the house was extended south and almost doubled in size. The front doors were surrounded with transom, strengthening crossbars usually built over doors and windows, as well as side lights showcasing the original hand-painted stained glass, etched and patterned patterned after the French cross, which was said to ward off evil. One of the house's most notorious features is its 125-foot-long veranda that stretches the entire length of the facade and wraps around the southern end of the house. I could be here a while talking about the outside of the home. I mean, it has six brick chimneys for Christ's sake. But let's move inside and get a better idea of the interior layout. Inside has 22 rooms spread out over two floors with a spacious entry hall that runs the length of the house. To the left of the hall is the music room that is adjacent to the only bedroom on the first floor and the principal rooms of the house are found to the right of the hall. The original walls of the house were removed and then repositioned to create four larger rooms that were used as identical ladies and gentlemen's parlors, a formal dining room, and a game room. The second floor features five bedrooms with en-suite bathrooms, which would have been pretty damn fancy for the time. The largest bedroom, which is known as the Judge Clark Woodruff Suite, is the only room that is accessed by the main staircase at the entry hall. The other four bedrooms, which are separated by a common sitting room, are accessed by the staircase that ascends from the rear logia. 
The grounds of the Myrtles Plantation are exceptionally beautiful, centered on a large pond that features a small island with a gazebo that is accessible by a bridge. Behind the main house is the oldest structure on the grounds, now known, now known as the General Store, and was where General Bradford lived while the main house was being built. To the south is another structure that houses a restaurant. The two ancillary buildings are connected at the main house by a 5,000 square foot old brick courtyard. As you can see, there is plenty of space for ghosts and spirits to reside at the Myrtles Plantation. At least 12 from what I'm told, though I'm not sure where that number came from. It's been reported that no less than 10 murders happened at the house, though historical records indicate that only William Winter, who was murdered on the front porch of the house in 1871 by a man named E.S. Weber, is actually factual. Numerous paranormal investigation groups have been to the Myrtles, as well as the Unsolved Mysteries crew in 2001, where host Robert Stack claimed that the production crew experienced technical difficulties during the segment that they filmed. Possibly the most well-known story involving the plantation is that of Chloe, who had been a slave owned by the former owners, Clark and Sarah Woodruff. Chloe's story is deeply tragic and gives credence to the legends surrounding how ghosts are created, out of terrible sadness, anger, and fear. There are several stories that seem to diverge in regards to Chloe's legend, but I'm going to try and tell it the way that makes the most sense. Clark Woodruff, by all accounts, appeared to be a good and honest man, but apparently he had a reputation of lawlessness in the region and a fatal flaw in the form of a rather insatiable sexual appetite. He was known to be promiscuous and have extramarital affairs. At some point he set his sights on Chloe, and she knew that if she resisted, she would be punished and made to work under the sweltering sun in the fields with the other slaves, or possibly worse. Because of this, she reluctantly gave in, and the two were involved in the affair for several years. But Chloe was scared, paranoid that Woodruff's wife Sarah might find out about the affair and punish her even more severely than her husband would. She started eavesdropping on the family's conversations, most notably Clark's, worried that their secret might get out. Eventually, she was caught by either Clark or Sarah, and her ear was cut off as punishment. Because of this, she was forced to wear a green headscarf to hide her butchered ear. Now, whether out of revenge or to win her favor back within the Woodruff household, Chloe had the idea to do something that she could never take back, one that would ultimately turn out to be unfavorable for her. Chloe decided to bake a cake for the Woodruffs and added an extra ingredient in the form of oleander extract, which she made by boiling and reducing the leaves. These leaves are extremely poisonous, and Chloe hoped that when the family, or most certainly the children, took ill over the poisoned cake, she could nurse them back to health, thus winning back her favor in the house. She didn't want to be made to work in the fields with the other slaves, and she knew that's where she was headed for her perceived disobedience. Sadly, her plan backfired horrifically. Only Sarah and her two daughters consumed the cake, and all three died from the poison. Chloe had given them far too much. The other slaves on the plantation, fearing they would be accused of murder by association, dragged Chloe from her bed that night and hanged her before throwing her body in the river. Over the centuries, Chloe has come up in photographs, more than once, usually in the background or in windows. The two little Woodruff girls have been seen in several of the rooms as well, and in windows, in and around the grounds, as well as reported apparitions in the mirror of the room that they died in. All three are stuck between worlds, it seems possibly unaware of their demise, though I think that Chloe is probably well aware of what has happened to her, 
if that's the case. The plantation was originally known as Laurel Grove, but was renamed the Myrtles in 1834 by Ruffin Grace Sterling, who had purchased the property at the time. He renamed the plantation after the crepe myrtle trees that grew all over the grounds. Sometime after, the plantation was passed to William Winter, a man who had married one of Sterling's daughters. In 1871, William was exiting the home when a then-unknown man appeared and shot Winter in the chest. Winter then allegedly stumbled back into the house and made it partially up the stairs where his wife Sarah found him. He then died in her arms. The house passed through quite a few hands after this before any sort of weird activity began to occur. It wasn't until the 1970s when the Myrtles was purchased by the Myers family that its reputation as a haunted house began to emerge. The family ended up opening the plantation as a bed and breakfast, and it didn't take long before supposed paranormal happenings began to occur. Guests at the bed and breakfast started reporting that they were hearing strange noises, while others saw ghostly apparitions, often in the form of a young woman wearing a turban. Most thought this apparition to be that of Chloe, who was a full-blown local legend at this point. Then, in 1992, the Myers supposedly caught her on film. That year, the owner had taken a picture of the property to help give an insurance policy on the house. The photo was quickly forgotten until a researcher asked to use the photo for a postcard. After blowing up the photo, he apparently noticed that the figure of what appeared to be a young woman in the background between two buildings. According to the Myers, there was no one in that spot that day, especially not anyone that was dressed in dated clothing as she was. If you look close enough at the photo, you can even see the headscarf wrapped around her head. But Chloe and the two girls aren't the only ones that live on the plantation long after they should have left. Like I mentioned before, rumor has it that the plantation is built on top of a Native American burial ground, a common trope with hauntings, but apparently there have been people who have seen a Native woman in the gazebo on the lake. The assumption is that she must be one of those buried under the plantation long before it ever existed. Other people report having seen William Winter, the only murder that we have proof of that happened on the Myrtle's property. Winter's ghost seems to be more of an echo, as he has been reported to relive his last moments in life by loudly stumbling through the front entry before attempting to run up the stairs, but he never makes it past the 17th step, which is where he allegedly died in the arms of his beloved wife. There is also another unproven legend that during the Civil War, three Union soldiers were caught looting the house and were shot to death in the gentleman's parlor, resulting in a bloodstain that refuses to be wiped away, dubbing it the everlasting bloodstain. Supposedly, when the Myrtle's house became a bed and breakfast, a maid was mopping the floor in the parlor, and when she went to mop the floor over the stain, it seemed as if an unseen force held the mop away from the bloody mark. No matter how hard she tried to force the mop over the stain, the same force prevented her from erasing the memory. A mirror also stands in the front hall that is said to house the spirits of Sarah Woodruff and her two little girls. This seems to be one of the main attractions of the house, and visitors are often photographed in front of the mirror in hopes that the apparitions will basically photobomb them. Legend says that the mirror was the only mirror in the house that wasn't covered during the wake for the lady of the house and her children. In many customs, especially of the time, mirrors were covered in the home of the deceased to prevent the recently deceased from being trapped in the house. I guess they really screwed up there with that mirror. Countless people have claimed evidence in the form of grainy photos or paranormal video, but there really isn't a way to verify anything. Numerous paranormal groups have investigated the plantation and have gotten evidence of their own, but I don't know if we will truly ever know what is real and what isn't. 
Apparently, the Woodruffs never recorded having a slave named Chloe. And although Woodruff's wife and two daughters did die in the house, they weren't poisoned. Like many people at the time, they succumbed to yellow fever. And the ten murders that apparently happened are likely false, as there is no historical evidence whatsoever. But in a place that has been around as long as it has, and changed hands so many times, it's bound to pick up a few legends and more than a couple ghosts. We travel now to the city of Vashery, about an hour west of New Orleans, to a property along the west bank of the Mississippi, known as the Grand Dame of the Great River Road, a gorgeous Greek revival home on the grounds known as Oak Alley Plantation. The home's crowning feature is its full peripheral, or freestanding, colonnade of 28 colossal Doric columns. The inside of the home is a square floor plan, with a central hall that runs from the front of the mansion to the rear on both floors, where it opens up to beautiful balconies where the breeze can be let in to keep the sticky humidity of a warm Louisiana day at bay. The bedrooms are on the second floor, and the rooms on the right side are now decorated with antiques and display life in the 1800s. The bedroom suite on the left side is known as the Lavender Room, where Josephine Stewart, a former owner, spent her final years. The living room, dining room, kitchen area, parlor, and sitting rooms can all be found on the first floor, but the most stunning feature of the plantation grounds is its vast canopy of 300-year-old oak trees, which line both sides of the quarter-mile drive up to the home. Younger oaks were planted along the drive and behind the house in the 1800s, and they now lead to the old farm buildings on the back of the property. These were converted into an upscale gift shop, an ice cream parlor, and a cafe that serves breakfast and lunch to guests and visitors of the plantation. The lawn and garden are also vast and take up a good majority of the property with its southern beauty. What a pretty picture of Louisiana elegance Oak Alley must be, but the beauty only covers up the sometimes tragic history of places such as these. Sometimes spirits stick around because they have a love for the place they lived in when they were still of this physical world. Either way, settings like this are perfect places for ghostly activity. The oak trees in the front of the property were planted in the late 1690s to early 1700s by a French settler who lived on the property, but the plantation wasn't built on the property until over 100 years later in 1837-39. to 39. The Bon Chazor Plantation, as Oak Alley was known at the time, was established to grow sugarcane by a French Creole man named Valcour Aim when he purchased the land back in 1830. Aim was known as the king of sugarcane and was one of the wealthiest men in the south at the time. In 1836, he exchanged this piece of property for one that was owned by his brother-in-law, Jacques Telesfor Roman. The following year, Roman began building the mansion that stands today under the oversight and instruction of George Sweeney, entirely with enslaved labor. Go figure. Jacques died of tuberculosis in 1848 while his wife was away in New Orleans. She loved the social life of the city and desperately missed it when they moved to Oak Alley. As the years went by, she made trips to New Orleans more and more frequently, taking her children with her and leaving Jacques behind by himself. When he passed, he was alone and without his family. Louise Roman, the daughter of Jacques and Josephine, was raised in French Creole upper-class society. She was completely wrapped up in her apparent status, seemingly to her detriment. As the story goes... Louise had become infuriated when a suitor, who was highly intoxicated, had the audacity to try and kiss her in his condition. She lost her temper and fled from him, but in her anger she tripped and fell, 
cutting her leg quite badly on the iron frame of her hoop skirt. Because of the time and the state of her injury, Louise developed gangrene and had to have her leg amputated because of a hoop skirt injury. Those are words I never thought I would say in the same sentence. She felt that she was now damaged goods and not fit to marry within her class, so her only recourse was to join a convent in St. Louis, Missouri, devoting her life to serving God. Eventually, she did move back home to live out her remaining years at Oak Alley. Many years later, in 1925, Andrew and Josephine Stewart acquired the property after it had been left in disrepair for some time due to the previous owner's inability to afford the cost to maintain said property. Andrew had purchased the property as a gift for his wife, who commissioned the architect Richard Cox, Kosh, Kosh, it looks like Cock, I don't know, to supervise her extensive restoration and modernization of the mansion. They both loved the plantation so much that Josephine even started a foundation for the property, named as such, which she left the historic house and grounds to in 1972 when she passed away. It was then opened to the public. Just like the Myrtles' property, this plantation changed hands many times and housed numerous people, including those enslaved, over the decades, a perfect breeding ground for ghosts and lost spirits. There have been numerous sightings of a slender entity thought to be a young woman with long hair, and some seem to think that this is either Josephine Pyle or her daughter Louise. The apparition is seen throughout the mansion, walking up on the widow's walk and haunting various rooms. Supposedly in the master bedroom, a tourist inadvertently captured the image of the specter on film. She is also said to ride around the estate grounds on her horse. Since Josephine Pyle didn't seem to have the love for the plantation like her daughter or husband did, I wonder if this is Louise that witnesses are seeing, since she probably linked part of her status to her lavish home, though Josephine may feel guilty about leaving her husband behind, especially in his death, and has come back to keep him company in the afterlife. There is also a possibility that this singular apparition is actually two separate entities, mother and daughter. Jacques himself has been seen as well, as a man wearing grey clothing and riding boots. He was seen near the back of the mansion around the old kitchen by one tour guide, and his face has even appeared in a mirror in the attic. And of course Josephine Stewart, probably the one owner of the house that loved the plantation the most, has been seen quite a few times in and around the lavender room. One person reported that after a private event, they went to close the big house for the evening and discovered the lamp in that particular room was on, illuminating the whole space. Not long after, a shadowy figure of a woman glided across the room and paused to look at them. She has also been seen sitting on the bed in this exact room. More non-specific activity has occurred on the property as well. It was reported that a candlestick once flew across the room in the middle of the night while a group of visitors were on a tour. On several instances, staff has heard the sound of crying coming from somewhere inside the big house. Was it possibly Louise lamenting the loss of her leg and her status? Another story recounts a maintenance man who was working alone in the mansion on a project. He reported that he felt a presence that touched him as if to encourage his good work and effort. Even a group known as the Louisiana Spirits Investigations made two visits to the property and got some rather interesting results. On their first visit, shadows were seen on the wall, mists were captured on film, and short glimpses of what was thought to be Jacques's face were seen in the mirror. There was also an entity that supposedly grabbed the arm of one of the investigators rather harshly. He, repaired, he reported that it felt like an electrical charge had shot through his arm, causing him to drop his camera. 
there were also several EVPs that were recorded that night. On their second visit, the activity seemed to be centered in the attic, just like the first had been. Bill Murphy, a California filmmaker, accompanied the team on this investigation to record, and they caught quite a few more great EVPs from this trip. It was also reported by a few crew members who slept in Cottage 4 that they were awoken in the early morning by a loud bang in the bathroom. The hauntings of Oak Alley Plantation don't seem to be disputed as much as those of the Myrtles Plantation, since the spirits here can be traced, more or less, back to actual owners and people who lived in the house and on the property. Like I've said before, stories have a tendency to change over time as they pass through the lips of other people who want to believe. Legends are legends for a reason, and sometimes people see what they want to see, and that may result in hauntings such as that of Chloe at the Myrtles Plantation. That's not to say that Chloe, and I say that in quotes, isn't an actual spirit on the grounds. The, pen, the plantation had slaves for quite some years and several owners over its lifetime, so there's probably a spirit there that resembles the one in the possibly fictitious story. As a matter of fact, there are probably far more spirits on both of these properties than have ever been reported. Their histories have been around for much longer than any of us have been alive, and it is likely that numerous undocumented deaths happened on the land that houses these plantations. And then you have to take into consideration the fact that Louisiana is probably one of the most haunted states in the country, at least the top five, if not higher. Pretty much no matter where you step in the state, you're going to encounter a spirit or two. You'd think that I would have been able to find more stories involving haunted plantations in Louisiana, but maybe I didn't dig deep enough into the archives. I do know that there are plenty of plantations scattered across the southeast that are full of ghosts and horrifying hauntings, so maybe that is another series I need to tackle at some point. But for now, I leave you with two beautiful Louisiana plantations, their history, and the gloat and the ghosts that still live on the properties. <laughs> if you're interested in ghostly evidence from the plantations and are part of my library card tier on Patreon, I will be posting photos and EDPs and anything else I can find in the Secret Archives Facebook group. If you'd like to become a patron for the podcast, you can find the link on my Buzzsprout page. Our $10 tier for the Occult Archives library card gets you a shout-out after you join, added to our Occult Archives Facebook group. I cannot speak tonight, guys. I'm sorry. Instead of trying to mess with Discord. And access to bonus episodes that no one else will ever get to hear, including the first ever scary story hour with the archives. Plus, if you join, you get to bug me all the time in the private archives group whenever you want actually discuss the creepy and weird in real time and you get more of my neurotic ramblings because I know that's probably what you guys love <laughs> so until your next visit stay home lock your doors salt your windows and remember it's okay to sleep with the lights on theme music for the occult archives by junk food 2121 and background music by purple planet music